Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the second installment in our Jason Bourne movie review series. Today we are reviewing The Bourne Supremacy. This is your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan. And as I noted last week, audiences only had to wait 25 months for this sequel to come out. This new independent property to the screen was such a hit, they said, let's go ahead and make a sequel. Now, Robert Ludlum had written a sequel to The Bourne Identity, which he actually was originally never going to do, but he thought, hey, what the heck, I might as well. So. The titling of the trilogy comes from Robert Ludlum's original novels that had come out decades before, but the but the stories in the movies are their own thing. They don't follow the books, but right. it is still exciting to see that they are coming back with a new film, but not necessarily with the same crew as last time. Right, yeah. This time, as you kind of stated, the Born Supremacy is kind of its own thing. Uh, it's that only really shares, from what I understand, really only shares the title of the book, and that's about as far as the similarities go between the two of them. Um, but you are right. There are, uh, we do have a newer crew this time around. We've got a new director. In place of Doug Lyman, we've got Paul Greengrass, which was as stated last week in the closing. Uh, Paul Greengrass, I think he was picked for a movie called Bloody Sunday, and that was pretty much his only uh, movie. I think he did one other. But yeah, like last time, another new director. And I would say it is surprising that they went with another new director. Um, Doug Lyman is still on board with this film. He's executive producing. Right. But nevertheless, they still wanted another indie feeling film, another kind of foreign documentary film. Greengrass is British. So it is interesting in their directorial choices. And I know Greengrass will come back for the third film and the fifth film. That's right. And uh, the reason why they decided to go for Paul Greengrass um, was there is a cinematic style that he has in, uh, at least in Bloody Sunday, that they that apparently the producers really liked. And that was with the camera. His use of the camera, he tried to implement it in a way where it felt like the camera was an active participant in the story. Um, so lots of handheld shots and, and things like that. Lots of natural sound. So... That was partially why they were like eyeing Paul Greengrass when they decided to get a new director was for that cinematic style. So he brings that here into Supremacy and then later into Ultimatum next week. So when this film did release at the box office, did it do very well? Because we noted last week, Bourne came in number second. Right. So last week, yep, Bourne Identity came in second. Um, but this week... Uh, Born Supremacy does come out at number one. Uh, mm -hmm. It ran up against iRobot at number two. That was already in its. It was already in for its second week at this point. Catwoman released the same week at number three. Spider-Man Two at the number four spot within its fourth week, and a Cinderella story at number five that was in its second week. Now the next week it dropped to number two, 
Um, the Village came out that week, and the Manchurian Candidate came out that week, um, being one the one number one spot and number three spot respectively. And then number three, it dropped down to the spot number three with Collateral, Collateral being released that week and Little Black Book, which actually came out number five. So all in all, it did, in terms of placement, it did really well in the box office. Uh, it just went down one, two, three, and then I think it went down to like five and then six in the weeks after that or something. So yeah, did really, really well in the box office, at least in its placement. Yeah, and that doesn't surprise me, judging off of the first film, right? how well that did for a new new movie and audiences didn't have to wait very long. And I'm looking through what films came out in 2004, and there's a lot of films that I remember that were very influential on me that I really loved. Uh, of course, Spider-Man 2 is back, which is funny yep. because the first Spider-Man came out at the same time. Right. The Incredibles came out, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, it also looks like Van Helsing came out with Hugh Jackman. Oh, really? I love that movie. And also Alien versus Predator, which I have a soft spot for those movies. Oh, uh, yeah. It's mostly nostalgia. Uh, Man yeah. on Fire came out also. Uh, Secret Window with Johnny Depp. So I don't think anybody has kept these movies in high regard. Uh, Hellboy uh, also came out. Polar Express, Napoleon Dynamite, Shrek 2, uh, Kill so, Bill I mean, 2. I guess all of like, I guess the sequels have been held in high regard. No, Shrek 2 is considered the best Shrek movie. Spider-Man mm -hmm. 2 is considered the best Spider-Man movie. Um, so I, I guess sequel wise, uh, there have been a lot of, I guess, uh, high standing movies. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, Ocean's 12, National Treasure, That's Hotel right. Rwanda, Princess Diaries 2. It's kind of the year of sequels, Scooby-Doo yeah. 2, which we noticed Scooby-Doo beat uh, The Born Identity at the box office last That's time. That's right. That's right, it did. So what kind of budget did they have to work with on this movie? I, I'm guessing the budget is higher than last time. Right. So last week you said they had about a $60 million budget. This week it's anywhere from 75 to $85 million. Uh, It kind of depends on where you look to get that answer. but it is an upgrade from last week. There is a bit more of a budget there. Um, now, in terms of making money back, uh, again, did very, very well, just like last week. It made on its opening weekend, 52.5 million. Um, in total, domestically, 176.1 million, foreign, 134.9 million, with a worldwide total of somewhere between 290.6 and 311 million in the box office. So very well, just like last week, they both have done very well in the box office. That is interesting because 290 million or a little over 300, that's still a significant difference from 214 million. But eh, you can see that this film, I would say, isn't quite there with uh, blockbuster level. I mean, it's not cracking 200 domestically or foreign. So these movies are drawing a lot of tension and making a decent amount of money, but they're just really not quite blockbusters yet. Right, right. Now, in terms of ratings, though, uh, just again, like last week, this is very much a kind of a, a rep repetitious series, at least to these two movies. The ratings are very similar to The Born Identity. Um, so Supremacy got a 7.7 .7 IMDb, Metascore with a 73. Rotten Tomatoes at an 82% with 90% audience score. Cinema score at A minus and Letterboxd at a 3.6. So pretty much all across the board, 70s and above with their rating, which is really, really good. 
and that puts it just basically on par with yeah. the last film. Um, most of these ratings are just slightly below last time, mm-hmm. uh, except the Metascore increased. Um, but yeah, audiences on CinemaScore said it's just as good. They liked it just as good as last time. Yeah. Yep. So it sounds like coming into this from last movie to this movie, it's about the same um, from what I'm seeing with these audience scores and the money it made back. Seems like audiences and critics feel roughly the same with the Born Supremacy as they did with the Born Identity. And it is also worthy to note that this is the shortest film in the series. It's uh, about 10 minutes shorter than last time. I will say they utilize the runtime very well in this movie. they do. So, Alan, it's 2004. It's nearing July. It's during the summer months. You are... Okay, you said the trailer last time wouldn't have got you into the theater, right? Right. Okay. So, let's say you watch the the Born Supremacy trailer comes out and you see it. Are you thinking, oh, what did I miss last time? I better go rent this movie or pick it up on DVD and watch it. Or are you like, eh, I, I'm still not intrigued. I'll just maybe wait for the home video. Maybe not. Yeah. If I had not seen The Born Identity um, before this, I probably wouldn't catch my eye. Um, I don't think I'd be too keen on watching it. If I had seen The Born Identity, then I'd probably be more intrigued by it. Uh I mean, the trailer is good. It doesn't really give a, ho- a whole lot away, except that, you know, uh, the CIA is after Jason Bourne now. So, I mean, it doesn't really give a lot away, so it's somewhat intriguing. But given how much I wasn't very excited for last week, um, and under the precincts that I haven't seen it, I probably wouldn't have. If I had seen The Born Identity, then I would probably be uh, more intrigued to see it. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you, because if I saw the first one in theaters and I liked it, then I would actually probably wait for home video on this one. Mm-hmm. Or if I hadn't seen the first one, then this would not excite me to go back and watch the original. So I found the trailer to be weird. I I felt like the the trailer man voice was just out of place in this one. Ah, uh, yeah. I didn't really like the editing and it just didn't seem to progress the narrative in any way that would catch my attention, which I'm surprised because I loved the trailer last week. Mm-hmm. So they kind of dropped the ball on this one, I'd say. Yeah, it is still definitely early 2000s trailers with oh, the yes. with the cinematic trailer voice that is in like almost every trailer that was released <laughs> that year anyways. So. Well, listeners, if you haven't seen The Bourne Supremacy and you don't, want the film spoiled for you because there are a lot of mystery in this movie series then go ahead and click pause right now go ahead and go watch the film and then come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it it's been two years since jason Bourne walked away from treadstone he's since been having weird dreams and flashes about a previous mission he and marie have been living peacefully in goa india that is, and took an assassin is sent to kill Jason. He and Marie go on the run, but Marie is shot, resulting in the car plummeting over the bridge and into the river. Presuming Jason is dead, the assassin leaves, prompting Jason to head to Naples, Naples, Italy, to figure out why he is all of a sudden being hunted. Back in Berlin, Pamela Landy sets up a meeting with a Russian source for something called the Nesky Files, which is information about an old job that the CIA did that ended up going south, resulting in a loss of $20 million. However, it's interrupted when somebody else enters and murders those involved and running and runs off with the Nesky files. 
Upon investigation, it is found that Jason Bourne's fingerprints were left at the crime scene. Bourne is identified in Naples and is brought in for questioning. Bourne escapes, however, um, learning that he has been framed for killing two of the CIA agents. Bourne heads to visit a man named Jarda, the last remaining operative from, the, from Treadstone, hoping to find some answers as to why Treadstone is after him. Come to find out, Treadstone died the night that Jason walked out. Jason kills Jarda and evades the CIA operatives once again. Bourne then demands to see Nikki and figures out the truth. He was, in fact, framed, and Conklin isn't exactly the leader of Treadstone. Rather, Ward Abbott is. Danny Zorn, a former agent under Conklin, shows Abbott that during the trade in Berlin, one of the bombs that was set up to turn off the power was set up incorrectly. Um, however, uh, after learning this, Abbott then murders Danny on the spot, leaving his body. Bourne heads to the hotel where he, that he keeps having visions about. This claimed last training mission was where he murdered Nesky and his wife, putting blame on the wife. But Bourne is chased out with more when more police arrive. Bourne then heads to Abbott's room where he finally admits to framing Jason. Come to find out, Abbott is on the side. Abbott is the one who stole the 20 million and ordered Nesky to be killed, a mission that was undocumented. He had planned on using Jason's assassination to clear his name, but Jason has the upper hand as he recorded Abbott's admi admission, leaving the recorder on Pamela's in Pamela's room. Bourne then heads to Moscow, and the assassin from Goa hops on his trail. A car chase ensues, and ending in the assassin being T-boned into a fork in the tunnel. Finally free, Jason visits the ne visits Nesky's daughter, telling her the truth that his father didn't die from his mother, who then turned the gun on herself. He shot them both. Bourne tells Pam to get some rest as he escapes once again and credits roll. So right off the bat, you can see from Alan's plot description that I would say this plot is far more dense than the previous film. Yes, absolutely. When I was typing up the plot summary, I was like, oh man, I didn't realize, <laughs> I guess, that this was, I, I don't remember this being ever this detailed when I watched it in the past. To be fair, this is probably the board movie I remember least about. Um, so I'm sure that has something to do with it, but you're all correct. This is of the two so far, this is definitely the most involved and most, and more, probably the most dense plot that we've had, uh, at least compared to the two that we've gotten through so far. That's the thing about the Bourne series for me is I've seen these movies a lot, but I come back to them every few years. It's just kind of like I'm in the mood mm -hmm. to revisit the series. So my dad and I will go through them. And that's the thing that's kind of amazing about these films is no matter how many times I see them, when I come back to watch them, I really don't remember the details of the plot or how the story is going to go or even what happens in certain films because there's just so much to these plots. And I would say probably if you're not watching this one with subtitles, then it, you're going to be missing stuff because there are a lot of characters to keep track of. There are new right. characters. Uh, they pull uh, it's pretty incredible they kill off some major characters and so yeah when i was watching this this time around with my ssg goggles on i'm like wow i'm really got to pay attention to figure out this plot yeah yeah exactly now one thing i noticed last time i didn't think I, we ever really talked about it in the podcast but one of i guess the main th uh crux of the story is jason Bourne trying to find the truth right he's trying to find out right the truth as to who he is right well that same idea is kind of brought back here that idea of a man trying to find out the truth however this time it's a bit different because instead of him trying to instead of jason Bourne trying to find out the truth about himself he's trying to find out the truth as to what exactly uh 
why Treadstone is coming after him, at least according to what he thinks is happening. And then, of course, we find out later, later on, um, it Treadstone is dead. It's just that he's being framed for a lot of things. So it's interesting to see this idea of a man searching for truth um, being told in, a, I guess, a different light this time around. Instead of him finding out something about himself, he's finding out why he's being framed. And come to find out, uh, it's the leader, Ward Abbott, who's kind of behind this whole thing. That is interesting that they take about three different perspectives, and I would say even a little bit more than that, uh, varying levels of knowledge as to the truth of the whole matter. Yeah. And it's really, like you said, only Ward Abbott that does know the truth, but that's not conveyed fully to the audience until towards the end of the film, which it is like there are layers that are slowly being pulled back. Pam Landy is very distrustful of the situation. She doesn't know what's going on. Bourne is coming from a completely different perspective, thinking Landy's running Treadstone. Treadstone's been disbanded for the past two years. And so that is something that I really liked is juggling these three different perspectives of who knows what information, what information is actually true. And then it is everybody is consistently trying to get to the heart of that and just realizing that people are operating off for different assumptions of information. Right. And it's kind of interesting, too, because once Bourne, like, learns the truth, or I guess kind of also remembers parts parts of the truth, when he murdered Nesky and his wife, he then goes on um, a journey to then repair that. Uh, at the very end of the story, he talks to Nesky's daughter. And he's like, yeah, they didn't die like you were told. Uh, they were actually murdered. I was the one who did it. Um, kind of as a form of apology for, you know, not allowing her to know what happened to her parents, like what not not allowing her to really know what happened to her parents. So it's an interesting angle for this movie to take. It, it's kind of this kind of similar in the last movie where um, they're taking more of an emotional angle to an action film. Um, but this time around, I think I felt it more than I did last time because it's Jason Bourne admitting to somebody he's affected. He's admitting them the truth and saying that this is what really happened as some form of apology. Yeah, this film focuses more on the catharsis of the character. It's not so much just about the action and the mystery, but it's more so about the redemptive arc. And the film brings up the question, how can we have a redeemable character when he doesn't understand or even know about the sins that he's committed? Right. And I really do like the way that it does focus on his first mission. And even that first mission was off off the books. Right. And uh, I actually always found that when I was younger and I watched that, I always found these flashbacks and the, the, his first mission to be quite terrifying, actually, and to be quite disturbing mm-hmm. because we want to really root for Jason Bourne as an action hero. But I think watching these films this time around, you realize that he is also a villain. He's also uh, murdered these people in cold blood, made it look like a suicide and completely ruined a little girl's life. Just uh, absolutely horrible and awful. And realizing that he wants to be this good guy because Marie in the beginning of the movie says you have a choice. Right. And it's just all about like choice and choosing to do the right thing, which I really do appreciate in these movies. But then realizing at the same time that uh, yeah, he, he actually 
it felt it felt very serial killer esque how he is just uh, secretly hiding and then he just jumps out murders them. So it is it does take a very heavy approach to this character we're trying to root for. Right, and it's I I would say even kind of. Uh, makes this situation, especially there at the very end, a bit more impactful because mm-hmm. we find out, uh, I, I think actually he ends up telling us, but we kind of figure out through the flashbacks that it was only supposed to be Nesky. It was only supposed to be the dad that was going to be in the hotel room and he was going to kill him silently. Um, but then all of a sudden the wife shows up, which was unexpected, so he had to change his tactic. So the the plan originally had changed where it could have just been the father was the one who died. Instead, because the, because the wife walked in the room, Jason had to switch things up and ended up murdering them both, blaming it on the wife. Um, so it's kind of partially his fault because he was the one who had to change up the mission at the last second to pull off, uh, what he was assigned to do. So in some ways he has some form of responsibility, um, to do, to what he had done. And so I would say that it just helps, uh, impacts the ending when he's talking to, uh, the the Nesky's daughter. It also impacts his choice in the very first film. I would say it gives a greater information on why he didn't shoot Wambosi in the head because Wambosi had his little child on his lap. Right. And now having this previous information that he committed two murders and made it look like a suicide and ruined a little girl's life, I think that we can see how much it was getting to him, which led to him uh scrapping the operation and that's what led to his memory loss in the first place so i like how they do use the second film to actually flesh out the first film and the other thing that i find very important is in order to make his apology meaningful and in order for him to understand the weight of his decisions that reconciliation there at the very end born needed to experience loss in his life as well yeah so that is why it is actually very important that they do kill Marie off in the first act because that gives him the ability to have that human empathy. Well, I should I'd say sympathy actually mm-hmm. of loss of a loved one. And so having the death in the first act and then having the reconciliation in the third act is a nice arc, I would say. Yeah. And there's also that scare of, you know, is Jason Bourne going to now without, you know, that more of the moral compass that Marie represents um, and that empathy and sympathy um, of being more of a human being, is Jason Bourne going to revert back to mm-hmm. his old ways? Because especially now after she's dead and the CIA is coming back after him again, you know, there is definitely a a fear of that happening. And I would say at times it kind of feels like he's reverting back to, I guess, the way that he was trained. But obviously at the very end, he kind of is able to pull out of that. Even though Marie is dead, he's still able to learn from the things that she taught him. That being, you know, you always have a choice. You don't have to revert back to the way that you were. You don't have to be this way, even though you were trained this way. Uh, And he's able to pull out of that at the very end of the story and even uh, talks to the daughter of a man that he had killed and tells her the truth in some sympathetic way to, you know, just so she can know what's happening. Um, I found that to be very interesting that even at the absence of his, uh, of like, I guess the, the grounding, um, human factor for his life, even that's gone, he's still able to move on from, you know, what he once was. And that's nicely showcased in two scenes. Uh, the first one is when he takes out Kirill in the car chase. Mm-hmm. 
And there is that sympathetic moment where Kirill is just bleeding and laying there. He's going to die from that impact of the crash. But instead of just shooting him in the head, Bourne does have that moment of like, I'm not going to shoot you in the head, even though you shot my girlfriend in the head. And he just walks away from it. Yeah. Because he's done with that. He's not going to go the extra mile of violence. And then also when he gets Abbott to confess to his crimes and he puts the tape recorder next to him and he leaves the gun next to him, leaving him with the weight of his decisions. And ultimately he puts the choice in his hands, whether he's going to live with the consequences or if he's going to take the coward's way out and shoot himself. So those are nice moments of leaving us in suspense of whether, like you said, Bourne is going to just revert to this cold blood killer, just shoot him in the head without question. Or if he is going to leave the sin, like make these people live with their sins and let them figure it out. Yeah. And this movie is definitely all about decisions. Just like Marie tells him, you always have a choice because yeah, like you said, Abbott is the one who makes the decision to end up uh, killing himself in the end. He's, he knows that what he has said is going to get out. And then, of course, you Jason Bourne has the decision not to kill the assassin that killed Marie. And instead, he walks away from it and lets the law take him into it. Like, lets the law take care of him. So it, it is a movie about, you know, characters making what making decisions, right? Whether they're good or bad uh, depends on the character and the context. But it is it is a movie about that. And it's clearly stated in the first act from Marie that you always have the choice. Now, speaking of Abbott's character, I really appreciate it, especially this time around, because in the first film, Abbott was kind of this like side character pulling the strings. Clearly, he was nefarious and dishonest in a lot of the things he did, but he really didn't play much of a role. I really like that they brought Abbott back and they also brought Nikki back. um, That's right. In order to flesh out Bourne's past more. And so Abbott becomes a major player in the story. And I think Brian Cox's performance is great. How he's just at his wits end. He begins the film really smug and really composed, well-groomed. And then towards the end, he is just disheveled. He is always in panic mode. And he goes even so far as to physically murder his subordinate, Danny Zorn. And I think that's a really shocking moment in the film. But uh, bringing these two characters back and having them influence the story further, I think in in a way it was a surprising decision because I think they could have just been done with them. Yeah. But I really liked the decision. I think it really worked better with the film that way. It's interesting to see Abbott's character slowly go down this path of him becoming just so desperate that he kills Danny Zorn pretty much in cold blood to try and clear his name. And he hires a dirty... Uh, assassin to take out Jason Bourne so that way his name can be cleared when in reality what he's doing is he's dirtying Jason Bourne's name even though he hasn't done anything for two years he's been out for two years uh he had Jason Bourne now has to clear his own name um so these two characters are on the somewhat of the same path where they're trying to clear each other's name um Jason Bourne's trying to expose the truth while Abbott's character is trying to conceal the truth um, and of course, in the very end of the story, the truth comes out and there are two on the same path of trying to do something with the truth, right? And they just go about it in two different ways. And so by the end of the story, ultimately, the truth does come out, um, even though Abbott's character is far more powerful than Jason Bourne's character when it comes to po- political power. Um, ultimately, 
the the truth does in at the end come out. Yeah, and I really like that Born is going to reconcile with his sins, whereas Abbott is going to persist in them, thinking that is going to be his salvation to expunge him of the entire situation. Right. Whereas Born is trying to get to the bottom of it and expunge that from his life in order to move on from it. And uh, the other thing, I thought it was such a smart move to bring in a new character, which is interesting because in a way, uh, these three films kind of work like a three-act structure of an entire story. Yeah. And so usually you don't introduce new characters that become major players into the second act, but because this is its own film and it gives these characters enough time, bringing Pam Landy in to the story, I think of her as very pivotal to this series just as much as Jason Bourne is. And I like how she is kind of the impartial mediator between uh, like the CIA and Treadstone Abbott and then Jason Bourne, this like, lone wolf man on the run and she is also really trying to get to the bottom of everything so she has a great introduction in this movie and joan allen does a, gives a great performance also yeah absolutely pam landy is when she comes into the story she's very innocent to this whole situation with, with treadstone and jason Bourne and stuff so she comes in with essentially a, a blank slate to it all and gets to make she gets to make the decision for herself whether who is right and who is wrong on this because all that she knows is she's operating under the pretense that there was money stolen from the CIA and they're trying to figure out what happened to that money. And because of that, she ends up getting involved with this whole situation with Abbott and Jason Borden and what remains of Treadstone. And so when she comes into the situation, she's rather innocent to the whole situation. And she's the one who ends up kind of pulling the strings there at the very end because she has a clearer mind than these two characters do who have already gone through what happened in the first movie. So that I would say that's what makes her character irreplaceable, at least in this movie, because she's the one who is the mediator between the two of them. She's the one who has more of a clearer mind than Jason uh, or or Ward Abbott do. What did you think of uh, Carl Urban in the movie? Who did he play? Uh, he was Kirill, the uh, Russian assassin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he was fine. He definitely serves as kind of just like a one-note assassin. There really isn't much to his character outside of just uh, an obstacle for Jason Bourne. Um. So, I mean, I thought he did good, but, you know, he his character also didn't have a whole lot to him. Yeah, there's not a whole lot to him, but in some ways, I like that he is also this mystery as well. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of the anti-born. I feel like in every movie, there has to be born, and then there has to be somebody that can match his skills. That is kind of always this thorn in his side. And he, it, he does assassinate Murray, which is a big point in the movie. So, I liked his character in this um in a way he's kind of like clive owens all these assassins are very quiet but he's got a very different look and modus operandi about him um one of the probably memorable scenes of this movie is uh, marie's underwater death where jason is trying to revive her and then he ultimately has to kiss her just let her body float away that scene has always stuck me stuck with me with the born supremacy yeah, same here. That that kind of creepy image of her kind of mm-hmm. suspended in the water as she floats away from Bourne has always been kind of spooky whenever I watch it. So I got to ask, um, because I feel it is more important here than it was even in the last movie, um, what did you think of the score? 
because I feel that the score here is much better than last time and plays more of an important role. But I'm curious to see what you think about it. Oh, the score is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is what I remember is... when I say I like the born when I like the born trilogy scores. It's this one and Ultimatum. Those are the two that I like the most. Yeah, it's really incredible what t- 25 months can do <laughs> in in the evolution of scoring a film, uh, because John Powell does such a phenomenal job. And yeah, when I hear this score, I I think of the Bourne trilogy, and I know Powell said they really wanted to do something untraditional. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to just make this an action movie score. Uh, the strings are incredible. They also used a certain type of Indian drum for those like really pulse pounding scenes. I'll go so far as to say I think this score for the film should have received an Oscar nomination because it is so unique and I think it is so well done. Yeah, like I said, when I think of the Bourne series as when it comes to its uh con- when it comes to its score, I think of this. Um yeah. this is yeah, this is a much better score than last time. I did say that I do like the score from Bourne Identity. Um, but I think this one has more of an identity when it comes to uh, <laughs> how its actual score is composed. So yeah, they do use a lot of uh, percussion and a lot of strings. It kind of gives it a more realistic uh, element to it because in the last movie we did note that realism was both kind of with, with its score, but mostly with how the movie plays out. Realism, it was a very important aspect to it. And I feel that that is just overplayed here, um, here, in this movie because it takes it out and not just how it did before where it's like how it's plot is played how its plot is laid out and then you know how certain things happen it so it's not like you know your typical cia uh spy movie but it's more grounded it's the same here but i would say that the score is definitely given along with other things an uplift with um i guess more realistic uh, elements to it because like I said you have a lot more percussion a lot more strings it feels kind of stripped down it feels almost in some ways kind of gorilla in its style yeah speaking of realism as well I think they have done an even better job of mm-hmm. choreographing and depicting the fight scenes those feel so visceral and hard-hitting when they're slamming each other's bodies around and the cars getting slammed around you you feel those you almost have to cringe a little bit because yeah. it feels like it would hurt so much and it just feels very violent oh, i yeah. think that the action is so well done in this movie and the other thing i really appreciate is after born is done with a scene he's limping he is hurt his body is bruised he's uh happened to steal some take a swig of vodka to d- dull the pain just a little bit so he can continue to push on yeah uh that and um i would also say the way that uh green grass uses the camera in certain scenes especially because i know he would tell the actors he would say we're not even going to rehearse this scene i just want you to do it how you think your character would would do it yeah and so i know um like when uh carl urban's character is just driving along the bridge and he just like pulls out jumps out of the car and shoots born mm-hmm. i know that was a really big moment on set where they they didn't even rehearse it or anything they just read the script and he's like all right let's shoot go do yeah. it and uh, i think that does really come across very well they wanted this to almost feel a lot like really spontaneous almost like a documentary like this is something real that's unfolding and so they're just like throwing the camera on their back and they're just chasing down as if this is a real life situation 
Yeah, and they, I would say that uh, in the background info section, we did talk about how uh, they really liked that uh, handheld camera and that style of the camera being an active participant in the story. It's the yes. same thing here. It, there's a, I don't think there is a still shot anywhere in this movie um, where it's on a tripod. I think most of the time it's moving in some way. Uh, the camera is almost always handheld. And I think that that really helps out kind of ground it in realism when you're getting to uh, these fight scenes or even just the scenes where you have two people talking in an office. You have mm -hmm. all of that natural sound uh, of just them talking or them thrusting through papers or whatever that feels like you're almost like you're in the scene with them. And I think that that, once again, along with already how realistic they tried to make it with it's not going over the top with the explosions and stuff, really mm -hmm. helps immerse at least me in the film because oh, yeah. you have, it feels very, very realistic. Um, obviously, it's still a movie, but they do a good job at at least masking that, that it is, you know, a, still a film. And under these different elements. So yeah, I that's something that I think I found to be more enjoyable this time around. And I know some people have uh, aren't too keen on the shaky cam of this movie and the next movie. Um, I never really, it never really bothered me. I always actually tended to like this kind of a style of uh, shooting with the camera. Um, but I know that some people are, are not being very big fans of this hand, always handheld uh, style of filmmaking, what they call it the shaky cam style. Yeah, I've got like two two different minds on that because the first thing is it does very much pull me in the way that scenes are shot or or blocked or choreographed. I am very much pulled into it. I and it and it is great. They shot everything on location. They did get out 200 uh cars with just people driving in them on these Moscow highways to shoot all of this stuff. They literally had Matt Damon jump off of the bridge. I mean, he was attached to a crane, mm -hmm. but he is actually, that's him jumping off of the bridge onto that boat. Um, so I am incredibly pulled in. Um, I'm incredibly riveted by it. Even in the office scenes, everything is very frantic and there's attention to certain scenes that really work to engage me in the film. Yeah. But at the same time, <laughs> the cinematography from Oliver Wood and this film was also this has a different editor than last time there are two editors on this film i have those are my two biggest negatives uh, that i'm just i hate about this film actually is, oh really yeah the editing is so dang choppy it's cutting way too much i don't know if it's because also i watched this in my theater room on a 140 inch screen but i found myself getting a little motion sick at times yeah um, that's kind of that was yeah. kind of where i i've heard most criticism is some of the shaky cam in this movie does make a lot of people who are prone to motion sickness they're not very big fans of it oh no i i couldn't believe it and that was honestly my main frustration with the film is how much they are shaking this camera around and they're constantly running with it don't get me wrong there are some very good shots um, when Bourne is being chased at night before he does jump off that bridge. There's a shot where um, it's a shot like between the legs of the cop that are running and you can see Bourne in the distance. I'm like, that's great. Too bad I only have a second to enjoy the shot. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I could not believe how shaky it was. Eventually my eyes just glazed over and <laughs> I just couldn't just focus anymore. Yeah. I, I'm really hoping they don't go this far with it, but 
especially watching one and two in so close conjunction, it's just a startling departure between how the first film is shot and how the second film is shot. Oh, no, absolutely. The, the, the difference in terms of cinematography from first movie to this movie is they're, it's pretty drastic. If my memory serves me correctly, I do remember Ultimatum being uh, much better than Supremacy with its cinematography, um, not as, uh, I guess, jarring as this one is, um, while still retaining that Paul Greengast style. Um, I guess we'll find out next week if the memory serves me correctly. But, you know, I've always, I've always, to be fair, I think it depends on who's behind the camera because I think that shaky cam like this can be used in a good way and be done very, very well. Um, but I think it also, there is a, the line between if it's done well and if it, you know, makes people motion sick um, is kind of thin from what I understand. Um, I don't mind it as much in this movie. I tend to like that kind of a thing. I like to, I like more realistic, uh, style of films anyways. Um, but I can definitely see why it would not be suitable for a lot of audiences. I mean, personally it does in certain sections of the movie, pull me out of it because mm -hmm. I'm just not able to track with what's going on on the screen. And I'm not really able to enjoy the fight. In some ways, I do like the frantic nature of it because that's how a fight is. It's frantic. It's not clean. It's very dirty. Right. But then at the same time, as, as a moviegoer, as a viewer, I'm just not really able to really track with what's going on. And so that's why, in some ways, I like fights that are put on a tripod, possibly. They're much more still. They're much more just following the character from a very zoomed out view. Yeah. Um, I'm particularly thinking of like the John Wick films have wonderful action. And you have to see that these Bourne movies did kind of lay some of the groundwork for John Wick. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Especially with yeah. that more realistic sense. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And John Wick does strive for that realism as well. And you're just there watching John Wick shoot it out a bit more. Um, one of my favorite fight scenes is also with Denzel Washington in The Book of Eli, where mm -hmm. it's a wide shot. And he fights, I think, five or six people all at once, oh, and wow. there's no cuts. Once again, that's very hard to achieve that in one take. Yeah. But it's pretty incredible to behold. It's not an up-close shaky cam. It's just watching him in real time fight six people. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I wish we had some of that here in this movie. Yeah. No, I understand it. I understand. Now, I will say with... Uh, from much I do praise the realism, I think that there are points, mostly within this, the film's second act, where because there's not a whole lot going on sound effect-wise, it's just kind of bland, like how real life oftentimes is. <laughs> I think that that does kind of start to retract from some of my enjoyment with it, because I feel, mm -hmm. especially with, mostly just with the second act, there are a lot of scenes, a lot of dialogue scenes, where I'm just like, okay, can we like, pick up the pace here um a little bit i i'm in, i'm into the movie but at the same time i feel like it just kind of slows in some of these scenes because it tries to make it realistic and because of that there's not a lot really happening um auditory wise so that's another one of my negatives is uh some of its pacing i feel kind of against the stretch there in that second act because i remember this movie being a lot longer than what like an hour and 47 minutes i remember being closer to two hour 15 from my own recollection before watching it. That is something that is interesting, the pacing. 
does with this film is it's under two hours, but this feels longer than the last film, even though the last film is at least 10 minutes longer. Yeah. And uh, we, we're going to get some pretty long sequels here coming up. But this is the shortest film, yet it does feel long. I think it's because it's, I found it to be dense with the plot. Yeah. And I guess I'm not feeling the same way as you. I never really found there to be a dull moment. I was constantly engaged and always trying to unravel what was going on. I even had to rewind a couple times just to make sure I understood mm-hmm. who all these players were and all of their connections with each other. But yeah, this plot felt long or excuse me the runtime felt longer than it actually was and i th- i think that was incredible they're able to pack so much into a story that's less than two hours so i personally right. really liked the runtime of the film there is one part in the second act though that okay. we should talk about that i still don't I, I still can't understand it i still have never quite figured it out and i even re- did my research and looked it up okay so when born goes to the other assassin's house in Germany and they have the fight in his house. You know where I'm talking about? Yes. Yep. I know what you're talking about. And he blows up his house. Mm -hmm. I have always been confused who this is. Okay. Yeah. So this is the last member of the last like uh, assassin that was a part of Treadstone. Um, He's the last guy and Jason Bourne goes and talks to him. I don't really know how he finds out where he lives. Right. Um, but that's how Boren finds out that Treadstone is no more and that he w- it was his fault that it shut down. Um, so yeah, the, this guy's name is Jarda. He yeah. was, he's the last member of Treadstone um, that I guess still exists um, today, if I remember correctly. But yeah, that's, that's who he is. Yeah, so that always threw me off because in some ways he looks like Mannheim, who was the assassin that took out Conklin in the last film. Yeah. That we thought was going to take out Bourne, but he shot Conklin. I thought they just recast him, but they're two separate people. And uh, we never find out what happens to Mannheim. And yeah, you're right. Jarda is his own character, Mm -hmm. but I have no idea how Jason Bourne knows who he is. I have no idea how Jason Bourne finds out where he is. In some ways, it just feels like a bit of a plot device to for him to meet up with another assassin from Treadstone and just to divvy up some information from the plot and uh, have another fight scene. This scene has, it just feels out of place. It just feels like, what in the world? I mean, when you're watching the movie, you just go with it, I guess. Yeah. But when you step back and think about it, I've never understood how Jason uh, arrives to Jarda and even knows who he is. It's never explained. So that's the one piece of storytelling I feel that's just kind of sloppily inserted there without any kind of explanation. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, I think this probably could have been padded out a little bit, um, given like maybe a bit clearer as to who Jarda is, how and how Jason Bourne knows where he lives. I feel like that could have been explained better. I'm with you. Especially because Jason doesn't have a memory. Yeah. How does he know? And they never knew each other because in the last film, when he faces off against the professor, the professor says, like, where were you stationed? I was this. They never knew each other. The assassins were never uh, in contact with each other. So, and I even looked it up and on the wiki page, they're like, it's not clear how Jason knows this. None of this is clear. And they're trying to provide explanations, but 
I don't know. This is the one thing where when you step back from it, you're like, wait, what? Yeah. I don't know. It's not that big of a deal, but it's always confused me every single time I watch this movie. I'm like, who the heck is this guy? And how, where's, where's his connection? But, oh, well. Yeah. Now there is an alternate ending. Um, yes, there is. Yeah. I guess technically it's considered the original ending mm. um, because what they did is two weeks before the film went, went out and premiered uh, Paul Greengrass and Matt Damon got together and they decided that they didn't like the ending of, <laughs> of born supremacy. And so they were able to get $200,000 from the oh, producers to go out wow. and reshoot um, the ending. So the ending that we have with Jason Bourne, looking in on Pamela Landy in New York, that is the reshot ending. What happens is after he's done talking to Nesky's daughter, he's walking out uh, and there's a shot where he's walking away from her, I guess, apartment building. And mm -hmm. it like pans up onto some more apartments and then ends up going, fading out to uh, New York. Mm -hmm. So during this scene, Jason's walking away from her apartment and he falls, he kind of like lays down in the snow on that lawn and then passes out, wakes up in a hospital bed with Pamela Landy there. Um, and she's telling him all kinds of stuff about how she knows who he is. His real name is David, um, things like that. She then heads out of the room and says, and I think Nikki is there as well. And she says, yeah, give him half an hour. Um, to think over, like, is, she, is he going to help us out yeah. or is he not going to help us out? A nurse comes around the corner to go into his room to give him some food and he's magically gone. And <laughs> uh, the hospital is put on a high alert and we find out that Jason Bourne has escaped. And that's the original ending, ending that they shot. Now that's interesting because last time we talked about there was an original ending for the previous film. Right. And... They're very similar because Bourne wakes up in a bed, but in the last film, he's talking with Abbott about coming back into the agency. So seems like they reused the same idea. I did not like this alternate ending at all. It comes across as very cliche and it does ruin um, kind of some of the mystery, I would say, to put these two characters in the same room together. Yeah. Um, when they've always been uh, kind of like moving around each other, I just did not like it. And especially it's just too much of a soft ending where she's like, we could we could use you as an agent still. So why don't you come back in? And then he cliche magically disappears. Don't like it at all. Um, I really like this ending where we do get a bit more of the puzzle. We learn he is David Webb. And then he's watching Pam and he says, you look tired, Pam, get some rest. That's just a crowd pleasing ending, I would say. Yeah, they're definitely trying to harken back to a scene prior where he yeah. tells them that he wants to meet Nikki. And, she, and Pam says, well, what if I can't find her? And he goes, oh, it's easy. She's standing right next to you. And uh, I do love that. Yeah, they're harkening back to that scene. And I do know that when they showed this new ending, um, audiences were more pleased with it, with how it ended oh, than they were yeah. before. And I would be too, because I love yep. that kind of like omnipresent, like Bourne is still out there. He's still watching you. Yep. And he's still kind of this ghost that you're just never quite able to get your hands on. Mm -hmm. The only issue I do have is I think the film would have been, would have ended well. I would have been completely satisfied if Bourne, if it would have ended up with a pan shot up, Bourne walking away in the snow in Russia, the, the movie just pans up and that's done. 
I don't really like that this movie kind of has two endings where Bourne is walking away in the first ending and then jump to who knows how much time has passed. And he's all of a sudden uh, in the United States right. for the first time. And since his amnesia talking to Pam, those are two different endings, I feel. And you could when you brought up that it was reshot. Ah, I can see it now. So those are the two endings that we have for Born Supremacy. I actually wasn't aware of an alternate ending or the original ending until I was doing research for this. Yeah, I watched it on the it's it's just filed under deleted scenes. It's technically not called an alternate ending, mm. but it is under the deleted scenes. And uh, once again, all of the deleted scenes were rightly cut. They're just a bunch of fluff and some of it's really stupid. Um, for instance, in Naples, Italy, instead of Bourne uh, just taking the guy's car that he knocks out, yeah. he just like randomly comes up to a group of guys that get out of their car and he just like says, hey, I'll buy your car for a ton of money. They're like, cool. And they just give him the keys. I'm like, mm. oh, that's stupid. No, no. Yeah. Well, Alan, I'm very curious to see what you think. What is your rating and recommendation for The Born Supremacy? The Born Supremacy, at least so far, I feel is the best Born we have of the two movies we've reviewed so far. Um, however, I would say it's not by a whole lot from The Born Identity. Um, as I stated before in that podcast, I do come in with some nostalgia to the series. Um, so that does definitely play into my score. But I, I think I just kind of like Born Identity, I found it to be more intriguing this time around um, than I have in, in the past. And it's got a very deep story um, when it comes to uh, like details and a intriguing sense of uh, an intriguing style because it is going for a very realistic approach, uh, more so than it was before. And I do highly enjoy that. Um, some of the pacing is kind of wonky, but the music I feel is a noticeable upgrade. The music and the cinematography, I feel both have a, mu a noticeable upgrade, giving these action scenes a lot more weight to them, I feel, um, than last time. So at the end of the day, uh, yeah, I'm still going to recommend it. I'm going to say my score is at a seven out of 10. Um, this is also one that I own on Blu-ray. Like I said, I own the whole, I own this original trilogy. The Born Supremacy surpasses the first film in nearly every way. The score has vastly improved, the film is gutsy by killing off pivotal characters, the action is crazy intense, and the story unravels Bourne's past in a satisfying way. From the first shot, I was immediately pulled in, and it was a delight to use my laser focus to actually pay attention and decipher the story, and who was playing who. Unfortunately, the camera work is so shaky, it did give me some motion sickness, not to mention the inability to even understand what was going on at times. This is one of the rare sequels that does surpass its predecessor. The Born Supremacy receives 8 stars out of 10 with a strong recommend. So I'm really excited for next week because next week is Born Ultimatum. And I remember that being my favorite of the series. And for a good chunk of, of amount of time, it was one of my favorites uh, of all time. So we'll see. It's been a few years since I've seen it, but we'll see what my thoughts are coming back to it this time around. I'm really excited to. To return to it. Well, you're not alone in it being one of your favorites because we're going to talk about the scores, the box office, and yes, even the Academy Awards next week. That's and right. So far as it's one of those moments that basically never happens where the third film is incredible and it does an incredible job. Right. Now, we're both going to be watching with our SSG goggles on to see if it really does deserve that or if all of that was just the hype train for the highly anticipated 
conclusion to the trilogy. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll see. I remember almost nothing about this next film. And you're right. It is like every time I watch the trilogy, I'm like, dang, the first one is so good. It's probably my favorite. I watched the second one. I'm like, okay, that one's even better. It's probably my favorite. Yeah. I watched the third one. I think the same thing. So we'll be curious to see if the Born Ultimatum can surpass the Born Supremacy. Yes. But in the meantime, before that review, Alan, what do you recommend that the viewers check out, whether it's a movie or a TV show? All right. So for the Born Supremacy, uh, I'm going to recommend The Italian Job, which does have that spy element to it, um, along with Casino Royale, because I know that we've mentioned in this podcast and also the last podcast, Jason Bourne definitely has some ties to uh to James Bond. So, I mean, if you if you like what you see here and you, for whatever reason, haven't seen James Bond yet, uh, I would say Casino Royale is a good place. Um, it's definitely a good one to start with because it is more modern uh, Bond. Um, and I do have, at least I do have some vibes of uh, the of the newer James Bond movies with these Bourne movies as well. So uh, I would say I would check out those two movies if you are liking the Bourne Supremacy. So I recommend that you go check out the film State of Play with Russell Crowe and Ben Affleck. There is a lot of similarities between these two films. State of Play is all about who is playing who and you're not quite sure who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. And the movie slowly unravels a lot of information that changes your perspective on the characters and what they're doing. I really enjoy that movie. Definitely go check out State of Play. All right, listeners, thank you for joining us. The question after the show is, is this a better film than the first one? Clearly, I think so. A little bit more so than Alan, but Alan says the same thing as well, that this is somewhat better than The Born Identity. So that's the question. We want to know what you thought of this movie. And another thing, is there anything we didn't cover in this review that you want to talk about as well? Well, go ahead and comment below. We would like to continue the discussion on the website, on YouTube, wherever you are listening to this, go ahead and leave a comment so we can continue the discussion of this film. Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we will see you next week with The Born Ultimatum. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners.
The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.